Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking and this week we are so pleased to be joined by the amazing Jenny from Vet Harmony. We're going to be chatting about her amazing veterinary career but most importantly her diversification within the profession and now her role at helping others to find their spot um, in this really challenging career path. We're joined for our clinical segment by the brilliant Rob White and this week we're going to be chatting everything portosystemic shunts. <laughs> what did you just say? Listen. Portosystemic. That's, that's what my master's is in, portosystemic shunts. It's amazing these words. <laughs> that was one take. I thought that was a mic drop moment. I've never done that before. That was one take, Karen. <laughs> Sorry, and I laughed at you. <laughs> and then you were like, what? <laughs> My name is Scott. I am one of the founders of ETX and I'm a specialist in small animal internal medicine. As always, I am joined by my friend, most importantly, but equally importantly, uh, our producer, Karen, who is here to keep us on track. So, Jenny, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a real honour. I wanted to, um, <laughs> I don't want to embarrass you, but I wanted to start um, with a description that um, I've I've sort of taken off your website, which I think is a really brilliant way of describing you. So um, on your website, you say that you're a vet, you're a growth coach, you're an entrepreneur, you're a mindfulness advocate and imperfect. You're the messy mum behind Vet Harmony and your passion is helping uh, us or others to connect with ourselves, uh, to ditch perfect, to discover joy in your unique talents and find harmony within your life. Now, I think that sounds pretty brilliant. <laughs> and um, so we can maybe talk about one and many of those things. Um, yeah. If you were to choose one of those things that you are, um, yeah. What? which one would you choose as your kind of number one? Imperfect. Absolutely oh, top I of the list. Okay. Like <laughs> when I, when I was, um, for starters, I don't know if you found the same, but I found naming a business almost as hard as naming my child. And one of the um, other possibilities instead of vet harmony was going to be the imperfect vet, a little bit like the unmumsy mum. And I think that imperfection is obviously something that we all are but it's something that I didn't really step into until a few years ago um, and all really understand my relationship with it and I suppose I suppose it, I'm really passionate about showing people that you can achieve things you can um, find your way you can you can do be and have things whilst also kind of being a hot mess or not being perfect or not you know just just being imperfect basically we've started at the low bar so the only way is up so imperfect <laughs> the only way no but that's great and I, I love I actually love I didn't think that that would be the one that you would choose out of all of that stuff and that's perfect actually in an imperfect way there you go perfectly imperfectly <laughs> imperfect or imperfectly perfect whatever you want to say so let's take it a step back so you uh, that is the I've I've just read there off of your website, which is for your your company, your uh, Vet Harmony. Um, let's take it back a step. So you are one of those things as a vet. So you are a vet. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, can we start by just talking a little bit about that? So where did you uh, graduate from and when? Uh, I graduated from the RVC in two thousand and one, which feels like a very long time ago now. 
Um, having had a very typical sort of journey into vetting, um, I chose my profession at the tender age of four, um, come from a farming background, read a lot of James Herriot, loved horses. And so sort of, um, yeah, it, it took me a lot to get into vet school. Um, there were quite a lot of bumps and hiccups on the way. Um, so, but yeah, that's that was kind of my starting point back in the RVC uh, 20. What, yeah, 21 years this year, my goodness. It's sad to say that that is 21 years. <laughs> that's, that's um, gosh, yeah, that's sobering, isn't it? So, but you're still very youthful. <laughs> um, so you have obviously been, or you, you, you did spend some time in practice. So you did practice as a vet, is that right? I did, yeah. I spent seven years in seven years fully immersed in clinical practice before I started my diversification adventures. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that. So how did you start to go on that journey of diversification within the profession? So the I had, had finally achieved my childhood dream of becoming a vet and um, off I went into practice and I I was challenged by a lot of the things that I think we still see people being challenged by in the veterinary profession today. Um, I think I possibly had unrealistic expectations of the realities of first opinion, small animal practice. Um, and I sort of was comparing everything I was doing to what a referral vet would be able to do, even though I was doing a good job. And um, many, many, many really common things. So the, tw- the 10 to 12 hour days, the, the on-call, the, the stuff with clients, many things that actually I think if I could go back with the with the resilience training and the mindset knowledge the, the sort of the who I am as a person now I think I would probably have a different experience but back then um I, di- I didn't really have the mindset skills and the resilience to enable me to buffer against the harder parts of being a general practice vet and so I I, I, went, I attempted the specialization route. I'd, I'd, I'd always wanted to specialize and I, I really loved surgery. So I thought I'll go off and be a surgeon. Um, and so I started down the internship residency route and I really loved my internship. But during that year, I started to see the writing on the wall a bit, particularly work-life balance related and um, a few other things. And I realized that wasn't the right pathway for me either. And so I headed back to general practice and within two weeks, I just knew that I, I just couldn't do what I was doing until retirement. And that just flew through me completely. And I, there was actually quite a dark period for me where I felt very lost. Um, you know, I'd achieved this amazing dream. I was good at it. I was doing well. And I just couldn't understand why my absolute dream career kept pushing me to the brink of, of mental and, and physical uh, breakdown because it did do on, on a few occasions and so I, I sort of that was what sort of precipitated the start of my diversification adventures at that point. Obviously you are now uh, through Vet Harmony I suppose providing um, people with a service which which allows them to potentially better cope with uh, their you know their their uh, time uh, in practice and 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 you know they're balancing all of this kind of stuff I wonder so I was thinking I was listening to what you were saying and I'm thinking so you're you're trying to clearly help people now to be better at, at all of this and like you say maybe some of the things that you wish you had known you're now providing that knowledge to other people is it a case though of within our profession is it a case of 
providing people with tools and mindset changes to allow them to better manage the 15-hour days? Or is it about making changes that mean that we're not working 15-hour days? You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. so what are the... I know exactly what do you mean. Do you know what I mean? What is the solution that we just have to cope better with the challenging bits or do we have to change the challenging bits? Um, both. And then there's a third option as well. So there are two sort of landscapes, if you like, that we're working on here. So, so if you have the lens kind of zoomed in with an individual, when I'm working with that individual, it's about what's right for them. And, and for some people, we can give them mindset, I can give them mindset tools and techniques, and that will help them better adapt to veterinary practice. However, sometimes that's not, even that's not in alignment with them and we can optimize their mindset perfectly um, and still it wouldn't be the right role for them and actually they need to diversify. So that, that's kind of an individual level. If we pull our lens back and broaden that out to profession level, then absolutely there's a need to change. So it, rather, than, rather than helping people to fit into a system which is not culturally and professionally working brilliantly, which we can clearly see by, by the, the mental health challenges that the profession still struggles with, the, the, the flexibility, part-time work, you know, there's, there's diversity, inclusion. There are so many um, areas that are being actively work, worked on that I think are changing and do need to change within the professions so that people are not having to work so hard on their mindset and their coping skills to be able to, to sort of be resilient enough to do it. Um, and yet at an individual level, it's it's more about what's right for that particular person at this particular time in their life. So I don't know if that makes sense. There's sort of those two horizons. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm answering yes to both both yeah. questions. And when people come to, to you for help and, and guidance and support, what do you think? And I'm sure there are just a, such a diverse number of kind of challenges. What would you say are some of the real or one of the real kind of standout challenges that veterinary professional veterinary professionals are facing today ah it's a good question I think it's so one of the biggest things that I I see I'm just trying to think of what comes up most frequently with my clients a lot of it is about many people when they come to see me they feel like they're in this sort of either or situation of either they're a vet and they don't really have the the time energy and so the time and sort of energy to also have a fulfilling and enjoyable life outside of being a vet, or they feel like they need to leave in order to be able to get those, those things. So what um, a lot of what I see where, where people have got that balance, it's, it's been around finding what the sweet spot is for that individual person in terms of how they vet or how many, how much time during the week they vet Um and how much and how much time they need outside of that in order to be able to rebalance counterbalance that you know not not all stress is bad we know we have quite a lot of stress within our days we can't wave a magic wand and instantly shorten a veterinary day to six to eight hours necessarily so I think one of the biggest challenges that I see in the profession right now is people wanting to have wanting to be a vet and to, to encompass what that means and have a fulfilling, happy and healthy life outside of work and sort of bringing those two things together, I think is is one of the biggest challenges that I see. 
And do you think, so you obviously talk about work-life balance and we talk about work, work-life balance and I've spoken about work-life balance for mm. the whole of my veterinary career as far as these are, you know, these are words that get bounded around a lot. Yeah. Do you honestly, truly, and be really honest, is it really achievable in the veterinary profession? Is that is work-life balance, is that something that is just this fantasy notion that actually is not a real thing and we're all just pretending? Or is that really something that we can achieve as veterinary professionals? I think it is. I see people who are achieving it, definitely. I think I think it's hard if you are working four and a half to five days a week plus on call in a really busy practice, you know, sort of that, that there, I would say I'm not really seeing, I'm, I'm seeing it being more challenging. Um, but the first thing is you won't often hear me talk about work-life balance. I talk about life balance because we are, are for me, there is no separation. If, if you, if you sort of have that separation where work is on one side and life is on the other, there's then this sort of pendulum effect. You're, that's where often when you're at work, you're thinking about what you're not doing at home and vice versa. And actually, if we allow ourselves to integrate it, those two things and just look at the aspects of ourselves that are feeling in or out of balance um, and address it through that way, then I think that's more realistic. So there's not this, this false separation. But absolutely, I'm seeing people doing this. It's often requiring them to find the right practice with the right leadership and management using the right combination of their veterinary skills and really, really upping their ability with healthy boundary setting. Those, those I would say are the criteria. So I've seen people who were literally on the verge of, who come to me saying, I don't want to be a vet anymore. I can't do this. And when we've optimized those things, because, because maybe they just want to do consulting only and they don't want to do surgery, but they have a limiting belief that to be a good vet, you should be able to do both. And when we work together and say, actually, you have, you, you can give yourself permission to be a consult only vet. There is nothing wrong with that. You are still a good vet. And then we find them the right practice which does have good leadership and management and the right combination of hours and and work on their self-esteem and their boundary setting then people can absolutely nail their life balance but it but it often requires change yeah so that's so just just to summarize there then so that the key things you were talking about there are boundary setting the right leadership and management what was the other thing the right sort of type of practice um so whether you prefer working for a small two vet practice or whether you would rather be in a big hospital you know about the the environment that you feel you enjoy your vetting in the most um so sort of the, the right practice and the right split of how you're using your um, clinical skills so if you prefer surgery and you really find consulting draining let's look for a role where you get to do more ops and procedures and perhaps you don't need to do so much consulting and i'm starting to see more you know, a lot of people don't believe that's possible, but this is where a good leader and manager will not have a one size fits all for every member of the team saying everyone has to do this, but they will customize within reason and within obviously the service provision of what the practice has to allow. So yeah, type of practice, um, the right number of hours per week and then um, boundary setting. And but, and I think also, though, just 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 reminding people that they are ultimately in control of all of those things. So, yes, you are the one making the decision with all of that. So let's remember that you can at any given moment leave a job because of the wrong leadership and management, you know, and, and that can you're in control of that. You might not be able to change the leadership and management in a practice. 
but you can take yourself away from that practice if that's not working for you, right? So we need to remember that we're in control of almost all of those factors, actually, aren't we? And when you talk about does the profession at large need to change when we vote with our feet in that way? You, you asked most practices at the minute how difficult it is to recruit a full-time veterinary surgeon. They will tell you mm-hmm. it is really, really challenging. So if if those if you're in a practice where there is poor leadership and management, and you are able because of geography or whatever to move to a practice with better leadership and management. That sends a clear message to leaders and managers in the profession to to up their game to really value the importance of it and make the changes so that they can improve their own recruitment and retention of of the team so actually that voting with your feet benefits you as an individual but it also contributes to that wider change in the in the profession that we need mm-hmm. now obviously there's there's really positive things there that people can have influence on so all the things you've discussed and obviously again and, and spending time working on mindset and, and all of these things do you think that there is a point where actually regardless of changing leadership and management reducing hours or or modifying hours working on mindset do you think there is a point with some people where they do just have to walk away from the profession do you think people get to that point where they do just have to to find a different direction for their their careers definitely um and i call that an evolution so rather than walking away you know I think sometimes there can be negative connotations as in okay I've sort of failed at being a vet and which is not true at all so I think of it you know outside of outside of exceedingly vocational professions like ours the the stats are somewhere around and don't quote me exactly on this but it's I think it's eight different changes of career that most people will have in their in their working life outside of uber vocational profession professions and that's because we're growing and changing constantly ourselves. We're reaching a different stage of life. We might become parents. We might want to develop something outside of work. And so what we do for income generation often needs to evolve with us. And so I see this a lot. Yeah. And I think there is a point where, as as you say, you can calibrate for all of those things. And actually, if it's not in alignment with your values, with the way you want to live your life, with this sort of and evolution, I prefer that term to growth as well, because I think within the profession, we, we've we've got this cultural sense of pre- pressure that you must always be doing more. You know, we become a vet and then after a couple of years, like, well, I should do a certificate now because that's the next thing or I need to become clinical director or I need to own a practice. And that's great if those things fulfill you, excite you and they're in alignment with your life and your lifestyle. But if they're not, then evolution can sometimes, evolution can go in any direction. It can go up, sideways, back. Um, and, you know, for, for me, changing my hours and going, I suppose, part-time has transformed my life. And But many might see that as a step down or back, but it's, it, it's not at all. And so, um, yes, I think people absolutely can reach that point. And at the same time, it's not black and white. You know, you can always yeah. go back to vetting. Mm-hmm. And I think also just being reminding people that that any of this, none of this is failure. It feels very much like um, face value. It feels like failure because particularly if you have spent not just university years, but years after getting other qualifications, you're like, I mean, why have I done all that then if I'm going to do something else? But actually you have to think about what's coming next. So either the, the options are to stay in this unhappy place for the next 
however many years of working that you've got left or make a change and so what you know it's if it's going to make you happy for the next part of your working life then that's so much better you know and I think but that's not an attitude I think we kind of be like oh I'm not going to say it out loud because it sounds like I'm rubbish <laughs> but actually it's not it's brilliant do it you know what I mean and and I think also remembering that the veterinary degree does not just give you this one you know very specific skill it gives you so many different skills you know and that's an amazing thing too and it really can take you in lots of different in lots of different kind of places um one of the other things that I wanted to ask you about which is I think something you've spoken about in your 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 blog recently um is to do with is to do with burnout and um you know we I think particularly topical well it's always topical burnout always and but even more so off the back of the last year I think um and people I'm sure you're seeing this I'm sure you're seeing this yeah that people are just absolutely at the end of the tether so to speak mm -hmm. what is yeah. is that is that tr is that true is that accurate is that something that you are experiencing uh, seeing with your with the people that you work with definitely I think um I mean yeah certainly after the third lockdown um it's just collectively everybody seemed to be exhausted it's like that third lockdown just wiped out whatever energy levels any of us had left um and I think it's acted a little bit acted a little bit like a focusing tool so um it's it it's caused people to maybe question a little bit more what they were tolerating perhaps tolerating before when they weren't so exhausted the, the sort of exhaustion and, and this is possibly I suppose a slightly helpful effect really in that because of because we've all been pushed more towards that it has made people ask that question is this you know am I living in the right way for me is this is this the right thing and very much I was saying to people at the time don't if you're in that burnout phase at the moment it's probably not the best time to be making any massive life-changing decisions because it's important to work out what is what is well, I suppose there with when you actually look at the data and the research on burnout, often by the time people have got genuinely into full on diagnosable burnout, sometimes it can be challenging to come back from that. So if you're sort of a step back in compassion fatigue, those with compassion fatigue, when given time off and treatment and support will often reignite their feelings for their job and their and, and how they feel about it. Once we've tipped into burnout, sometimes that can cause us to to need to make perhaps some deeper changes um and so definitely i've seen more people at that point where they're that plus everything i think everything that we've been through really in the last year together through through that lens of covid has made people question things but i actually don't see that as a bad thing particularly the burnout mm. bit not so great obviously mm. just to explain then so what's the key what, what are the key differences in between burnout and compassion fatigue just so people understand so what what are the differences between those two things? I would say, actually, rather than me doing a clumsy half-hearted attempt at sort of, because the, they're quite specific um, mental health terms, the best place to go for an absolutely brilliant distinction between the two of them is to the VetLife website, um, because the resources on there around compassion fatigue and around burnout will give you scientifically referenced um, information that you can you can read. But basically, um, 
compassion fatigue is is more it's almost like a secondary trauma effect that we get from continually witnessing other people's trauma um, and where almost our ability to be, to be com- compassionate runs out um, burnout is is um, and, and that as I say it's not very pleasant to experience but with the right type of help and support often people will come back from compassion fatigue and reignite their their enjoyment of their their role as a vet um, Burnout has some additional connotations. And again, it would be best to sort of check the, the literature on that. Um, it often, often burnout requires longer time off work, um, more support. And as I say, sometimes some deeper changes around life, career, boundary setting and, and that type of thing in order for that person to, to recover. So we kind of really don't want to get towards either of those two. And I would seek, I would seek anyone who worries that they're heading in either of those directions to to get help really quickly because you can turn it around before you get to yeah. those those stages yeah and i think encouraging to see you know for you to say that actually it it you know it, you can turn this around you know and it doesn't always mean that that's you you've fallen out yeah. of love with your job forever you know there's definitely um options to to fall back in love but maybe making some changes that that mean that the job is serving you better and working better for you ultimately. When I was um when I was chatting to a friend who is a vet nurse um uh, and I can't remember we she's coming on the podcast actually I think and I was talking about who was coming on and so I said that we were speaking to you today and she fangirled <laughs> a little bit like got a little bit excited she'll love I'm actually I can see who she is it's, it's Ashley from Vets now she she knows that I'm, I've said this to you so she gets a little bit fangirly because I think she absolutely Aww. like adores you um and it's all after it's all after you did um you did a lecture I'm, I'm well you've, I'm sure you've done lots of lectures but she attended a lecture that you did um um on disruptive engagement and I remember her actually messaging me going I've just watched this session you must do do something about this or something. You know, she was really excited about it. Now, I, first of all, have no idea what that is. And second of all, uh, I'm interested to know because she was so excited about it. So I don't know. Can you tell, first of all, what is disruptive engagement? And second of all, why did she get Definitely. so excited okay. about it? So the um so the t- the um the term disruptive you you might have heard it more around um it's, it came originally from the financial sector so there's a there's disruptive fintech which is financial technology and you'll see a lot of disruptive this disruptive that it's just um things that are happening in the world today where new ideas and concepts are coming in and kind of shaking up the foundations of how we've traditionally done stuff for a long time in, in a positive way um and so, so like equity crowdfunding, for example, is an example of disruptive financial technology where before to be an investor, you had to have a shed load of cash. Now anyone with a tenor can become an investor. So that's completely disrupted the investment market. So I pinched the term um, and applied it to what I was seeing with um, the work of Dr. Brené Brown around. So she has written many amazing books, but one of them is called Dare to Lead. And it's Brené applying her all of her research and her work to how we show up as leaders within organisations. And when I read what she was um, writing about giving and receiving feedback, I was like, for me, it was disruptive. I was like, oh my goodness, why is nobody talking about what's what's really going on in our minds, our physiology, our body when we're trying to give and receive feedback? Because um, 
when you look at employee engagement in organizations, feedback, so knowing how well am I doing? Am I doing okay? You know, what so, so acknowledgement of what you're doing well, but also identifying areas for improvement is massively engaging. And so many in many organizations, this just doesn't happen very well, if at all. Um, and there's a bajillion lectures out there on how to give and receive feedback, but not so much about really digging into why is it so flipping hard? Like, why do we find it really hard? Um, and so that was what the lecture was around, really. It was sort of bringing the work of Brené Brown, but also translating that through a veterinary lens, because when it comes to shame and vulnerability, I think we have some really specific factors within the veterinary profession that amplify a lot of those things so we sort of pulled all that apart um, and then talked about um, sort of how to you know how can you when you understand what's going on how can you then have better feedback and engagement systems that don't shy away from the reason of why it's hard and why so why is it hard why is it hard oh my goodness I need about another 45 minutes um to it Brené talks a lot around vulnerability and shame, shame being the not in, not good enough emotion. So either shame either says to you, you're not enough, or it says, ooh, get you, who do you think you are? And it, it traps us. And we will do, as human beings, we will do just about anything to get away from that. And the reason we don't like feeling that is, is because of vulnerability. Vulnerability, when you define it, is uh, emotional exposure, risk, and uncertainty. So with feedback, when you're giving someone some feedback, you know, just to, for a nurse to be able to say to a vet, I can see you're struggling a bit with putting that bandage on the dog's leg. Can I give you a bit of feedback? That's incredibly vulnerable for, for a nurse to do because a good vet would go, yes, please do. I would love the help. But but sometimes that's not the response that that nurse would get. And so, so for her to offer that feedback, there's emotional exposure, risk and uncertainty. So all of the behaviours that drive our shame avoidance kick in when we are wanting to give and receive feedback. And, and it creates a physiological response. So just being called in someone's office for a chat about your performance, like often our hearts racing, we're not thinking clearly, we're having a very physiological limbic response to that. And it's quite hard then for that conversation to happen when one person is essentially in fight or flight mode and not really thinking clearly. And so, and it's that, it's that physiology, physiology that we need to address in order to be able to have better conversations of that, of that nature. I love that. I've never, that's so, you know, things are, it's just until someone says something, you know, you're like, but that makes so much sense. I love the, that shame and vulnerability and it's so true, but you, until you kind of pick it apart and 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 explain it the way that you've done then it doesn't it makes so much sense when you say it like that and i think those are those kind of moments i can i can see ashley now being like ah right because i had that same response i was like oh yeah and i've just just before this call i had an email from my boss asking me to come for a review on wednesday <laughs> and i had exactly <laughs> that's really true but i've ex like i've i've not replied because i was like you know immediately you're like oh god this is it game over <laughs> yeah yeah exactly. like game over this the, i'm and, gonna get and... found out finally and get fired exactly <laughs> right exactly i was gonna say the amygdala goes holy crap i'm about to lose my job even though that's yeah. not rational and then we go Ridiculous. and if i lose my job i can't feed my family i might end up on the streets yeah. not you know we go down the rabbit hole and that's probably going to tell you you're doing an amazing job and all this sort of stuff so 
so when we understand that and as especially as leaders and managers because it's not just receiving feedback that's hard giving it's really hard as well um and so yeah how to kind of um that the, the lecture that Ashley saw was a special live one that I did for Surrey but there's a pre-recorded version of that on on the webinar vet um for anyone that wants to go and watch it because there's a lot of tools and techniques in there about okay that's what's going on how, how do we deal with that messy emotional very human response in the confines of a veterinary practice where everyone is in left brain professional mustn't be seen as human sort of mode so it it's you know there's there's dissonance i suppose between our humanness in in that and and the sort of game face we we often feel we have to have as as veterinary professionals i think that's really interesting because i think i start every day you know with that kind of you know the, the different sides of my brain having that conflict where you know i say today i'm just gonna do i'm gonna be really like this and i'm not gonna be like i am normally which is all my normal human bits actually that came overriding and then 10 minutes in I've done all of the things that I said that I'm not going to do but I'm almost those things are not bad things they're just more human elements to my personality and my Mm -hmm. way of being a vet but I feel like I have to kind of override them and be this like robotic Mm -hmm. but it it lasts about 10 minutes I'm kind of over it now actually I'm just not going to bother anyway so (laughs) anyway um so (laughs) Really interesting. We we can link. We we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Actually, that would be uh, really good. And I'll be watching that. Um. So, sure. um. <laughs> so some other questions I wanted to ask. A question that we've um I've I've just stolen from another podcast, which I love. So the question is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, me. I want to be me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, is that the answer? Wow. Oh, that's yeah. a really good. Answer. That's a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because I think I've spent so much of the, for, uh, for, you know, I spent certainly up until my thirties trying to be what I thought I ought to be when I grew, grew up, grew up, grown up, became bigger. Um, and what I've realized now is that actually what I will continue, what I will be, will be whatever the next, evil, what, whatever feels fun, what feels expansive, what fits I, I don't know. I suppose I've stepped, I've stepped much more into my, the, the role of creator of my own life. So I've taken full accountability of everything that shows up in my existence. So I definitely didn't used to feel like that. I was firmly in victim mode. I felt helpless, like stuff was happening to me and I didn't have any control over it. And part of my journey has been realizing that I'm responsible for everything that shows up in my life. Not that I've def- definitely caused it, but that I can con- I can control my responses to it and what I choose to do. And so, yeah, I would like to continue to keep tapping in, tuning in. And when I'm out of alignment, finding what the next alignment looks like for me. And I'm not frightened of that anymore. I mean, yeah, good answer. Um, <laughs> I just want to... <laughs> no, my, my answer is not so wholesome, oh God. Right, um... <laughs> So obviously, I, I I think you you may not like to hear this, but I'm going to tell you, you are inspiring. You're inspiring to people. Um, so people are, and 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 that not just Ashley, but other people. <laughs> but she's <definitely laughs> inspired by you. Um, so I'm interested to know who uh, inspires you. So, someone who 
really inspires me would have to be Ebony Escalona. Um, she comes up a lot. Yeah, yeah. Does she? Yeah. I just, she was mm. the first person that popped up into my mind when I asked myself that question. And then I was kind of like, okay, why, 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 why do I find Ebony inspiring? Why does that come up? And I think it's just, I, I can't imagine really what the profession would be like without the, the shifts that have happened through Vets Day Go Diversify. Um, and that, that she, in terms of change, driving change, creating a shared space where people can come together in a very solution focused way, is is it's changed the face of veterinary medicine and to do that also what she's what she's doing for neurodiversity so as someone who has openly spoken about her challenges well not so much challenges really just just spoken about her journey with her own neurodiversity with with being bipolar um I find that hugely inspiring and very much needed in a profession where we desperately need more diversity inclusion and awareness um when I first went to Vet Stego Diversify Live in April 2018, I and many of the other delegates spent most of that conference in tears because it was the first time I'd ever been to a veterinary conference where I just felt like I'd found my, my found my people and 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 that instead of just hearing grumbling and moaning about the state of the profession, there were people actually talking about how it could be different and what we could do differently and coming together from every different, there was no hierarchy, like every different level of the profession. And so I find that inspiring because I struggle to multitask. So watching her multitask in that way, she, yeah, I just think she's generally an all round Mm -hmm. amazing human being. She is. And she's got so many, you know, just her skill set as well, you know, so um, for you know she's we're well we're, we're running a virtual day in a in a few weeks time and she's doing part of the tech for it like because she just knows, because she does all that stuff and you know <laughs> like I mean do you know what I mean she's just yeah just pretty incredible and then half the time you see her in social media up a mountain you're like oh be more like Ebony you know <laughs> Like, yeah, what would Ebony do? I've often asked myself that. Yeah, go go paddle boarding, um, yeah. so yeah, but in a really good way, you know. Really, yeah, really. No, that's a really that again. That's a really great answer. As far as the journey you've been on over twenty years, we'll not talk about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was forty five last week. Feels ancient. You you were not forty five. I was. Yeah. You don't look a day over 31. Um, (laughs) I didn't think you were 45. That's pretty good going. Um, What about reflecting on all of that? And I suppose you have diversified and quite rightly so. And you've, you've, as you say, you've taken control of all of that stuff. But if you were to, I suppose, knowing what you know now then and having experienced what you have done now, would you take yourself back 21 years and would you still apply for vet school such a good question I really had I really yeah I to think long and hard hard about this um and I would say my answer to it has changed so if you'd have asked me a few years ago when when the sort of you know very recently after diversifying I would have said nope I would not have done it again and actually what I wanted to be when I grew up was either a dancer or a riding instructor so I would have said, right, I would have gone back and I would have ignored my mum who said, don't make your hobby your job. And I would have done my, you know, British horse riding and stuff. Um, but then over the last few years, I've changed my mind on that. And actually, I don't think I would change anything. I would absolutely go back. Um, 
because I, d- I just every step of our journey that's led up to where any of us are right now has meaning it has value it's shown us things and even the you know the stuff you find difficult the stuff that isn't in alignment is there to give you a message it's there to help you it holds up a mirror and it shows you partly what you've got going on inside that you need to maybe deal with and and when you can ask the question why is this happening for me instead of why is this happening to me we can really learn we can really learn so much and none of I don't see any of my veterinary time as a waste at all like during my five years at uni my seven years of being clinically practicing I helped hundreds of pets and owners and not a single one of those contributions has gone to waste just because myself personally I've evolved and I'm using my skill set in a different way and actually the when I think back the adventures I have had as a as a vet have taken me all over the world I've I've used my vetting in Thailand Morocco India I've done some amazing incredible things that I would not ever have been able to do in any other profession I love the profession so even though being a clinically practicing vet wasn't the right thing for me, I would definitely do it all again, which is which I wouldn't have said mm. a few years ago. Mm-hmm. That's interesting too. Okay. And I love that. Why is this happening for me instead of why is this happening to me? I'm going to have to take a moment with that, but that's definitely one to think on. That's, that's quite powerful, right? Yeah, it's, it shifts, it shifts you out of victim mode and it, it allows you to reframe a set of events going, okay, that wasn't very pleasant, or this is not very pleasant. What's it here to show me? What's the, what's the message? <laughs> um, and, and actually then we can then take action on that rather than, when, when we say, why is this happening to me? We've completely disempowered ourselves. And we, we then tend to run more and, you know, we, we go off and have a pity party to ourselves, which I also do sometimes as well. Like I say, not perfect. I definitely will go down the self-pity hole occasionally. But then I will, once I've been there for enough, I'm like, right, okay, I'm, I'm done with that now. Right, what can I learn? How do I, how do I move forward? So yeah, it's quite a profound difference. Why is this is. happening for me? Even the way you say it, even the, you know, even when you said it there, why is this happening to me? Like it's got this kind of, it immediately has this very negative kind of, and then why is this happening for me? How much more powerful is that? You know what I mean? It just sounds so much more powerful doesn't it like it's just even that the whole the way those words come out you know that's really um that's very very cool (laughs) that was a great bit of advice but my last question is this I think if um if you were to choose one piece of advice that you could give to whoever you like your younger self people that are listening young veterinary professionals who need um to hear something a positive in their day but what one piece of advice would you put out there um, to those listening? It would be to work on your personal development as much as you work on your professional development. So that, you know, I talk about, I talk about the vet identity takeover. You know, often we choose being a vet when we're children before we fully formed our own sense of self and and who we are and then often that can become such a strong identity piece that we end up kind of being pushed along from behind by what the veterinary career needs us to be and we can lose ourselves a bit within that 
So when you take the time to work on yourself as well, whether that's listening to podcasts like this, doing reading, working with a coach, um, all those sort of personal development education things um, so that you can keep getting to know yourself and then almost like seeing yourself as a personal brand. So, so, so when you can form your own identity and, and then take that into the veterinary space and go, right, how do, how do I need to be a vet? Or how do I need to use my veterinary qualification so that I'm me? Then um, I think that's that's a really important thing because your your own unique personal brand is going to look different to your colleagues, um, and it's going to be based around you. So um, you know that that pathway to being a vet is so linear. You know we know what GCSEs we have to take. We we can only choose from a small number of A levels, a, a kind of growing but still small number of veterinary institutions. And then still a relatively small number of clinically practicing paths. And so, you know, that we haven't had to think outside the box. And then you graduate. And actually, I think, yeah, if you can if you can work on your own personal brand and what you need in order to stay mentally, physically and emotionally well and, and happy, that would be what I wish I'd known going back. Mm. Marvellous. I love thinking about myself as a brand. That's pretty good. <laughs> <Kim Kardashian>. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Is that what you meant? No. It, <laughs> <laughs> no. it is really when you think that a, that a brand is kind of to achieve the business's values in a business term. So your personal brand should be all about achieving your personal values. And vetting has to fit in with that, not you choose who you're going to be, depending on what the vet profession needs you to be. So a massive thank you to Jenny for chatting today. What an absolute joy um, to, to be chatting with her. We're now moving into our clinical segment. We're joined by the brilliant Rob White to chat about all things uh, portosystemic shunt related. We are so grateful for the support of Veterinary Instrumentation uh, on the podcast today. Uh, they are a global health care organisation which has proudly served the veterinary industry for over three decades. Now, Karen, I like to quiz you at this point in the show because um, we've been talking about orthopedic stuff the last couple of weeks. What, what What's your understanding of portosystemic shunts, pal? That it's a really big word. <laughs> limited, <laughs> limited at best. So let's throw some other big words in the mix. Let's talk about, let's, let's just say randomly amyloid constrictor. How do you feel about that? Oh, that sounds very dangerous. <laughs> It's not a type of snake. exotic snake. Okay. Um, so basically, so ever you well listen, keep listening to learn more about amyloid constrictors in our chat today. But anyway, to 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 learn more specifically about amyloid constrictors and all other types of surgical kits, then please head over to the veterinary instrumentation website. Um, anyway, let's get on with the chat. Okay, so thanks so much, Rob, for joining us today um, for this chat. We really appreciate your your time. I, I don't know if you can just maybe start by um, just uh, introducing yourself um, for the listeners, just a little bit about your kind of veterinary background and the lofty heights that you've reached now. <laughs> well, it's a very kind introduction. Thanks very much for, for hosting me on this platform. It's um, great to be here and great to be able to talk about a subject that's quite close to my heart. Um, 
I uh, qualified a long time ago now. It seems a very long time ago to me anyway, 1989 from the RVC. And um, I went into general practice for just under a year and then went back to the RBC to do my residency, which actually at the time was in anaesthesia and, and um, small animal surgery. So I sort of did a joint residency. Um, um, Professor Leslie Horn, who, uh, Fawn, who was there at the time, and, and, and Dr. Cathy Clark, who was there at the time, they found some money to get me to come back, which um, I guess I'm always grateful for, really, because I, I sort of slipped in through the back door. So statesman residency, I suppose, were just first starting. But um, I also then sort of got lucky in that various bits of surgery became available when I was doing my residency. And so I, um, when I first started, we, we were doing cross-species. So we were doing equine and large. And I remember being on the equine rotor and doing some colic surgery and things like that. But those days soon changed and it just became small animal. And uh, then it became soft tissue. Um, and that's really the, the, the route that I've been down. So I've done that. For most of my professional life um, uh, and uh, stayed at the RBC for a number of years. Then I left there in 1997 and co-founded um, what was Davis White Veterinary Specialist, which is now Davis Veterinary Specialist in um, Bedfordshire. was there for about five, six years, then left there and did some peripatetic work, um, some industry work, some work for universities for a few years. Um, and then uh, broke my arm and then realised I was a bit vulnerable doing self-employed uh, work. So um, at the same time, got an offer to go and work at Willow's Referral Centre, which was just going into their new premises in Solihull. Um, so went there and set the soft tissue service up there. Stayed there for about five, six, five years or so, something like that. Um, and then moved from there to my current position, which is at the University of Nottingham, where I'm Professor of Small Arm Surgery. So um, I guess I've had a fairly varied career, which seems to have moved on sort of every five or six years. But hopefully I won't move on again. I'll stay here now until I retire. Um, but most of the time, um, or all of the time, I've done soft tissue surgery. And I guess it still remains uh, a love and something that I really enjoy doing. And I think in that sense, I feel very privileged um, uh, and very lucky um, just to, to have done what I've done and to still enjoy still doing a cat castrate and teaching students a cat um, spay or whatever it might be. So that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, which is, which is good, which is good, I think. And well, and to be able to say that you still enjoy what you do, regardless of whichever career we choose, I think that's pretty... That's pretty good, really. Is there is there a particular area of um, soft tissue surgery that you still would say is your kind of, is there one particular area that you focus, I suppose, any ongoing research in or you you have a particular sort of clinical interest in? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that probably is portosystemic shunts. I, I mean, broader than that, it would be sort of vascular surgery. And so I spent a lot of time at the RVC doing thoracic surgery and, and developing cardiac surgery at the RBC and we did a, um, some of the first open heart surgery in the UK and valve replacement surgery in the UK at the RBC when I was there and so thoracic surgery has always been a love of mine but um, I, I guess the second love was was portosystemic shunts because they sort of appeared in my lifetime I remember being at the RBC very early on and, and we had a cat come in 
and it was almost the first shunt I think that the RVC had ever seen and it, and, and um, they were sort of quite unusual and quite rare and really very you know nobody knew very much about them so it was quite lucky that that, that went through that stage where it was almost like you were dealing with a novel disease that nobody really dealt with and seen in any great, great, great amount. And so I guess I was looking for that for lots of reasons. It was the same with things like um, collapsing trachea. They weren't really seen very much. And we started to see lots of those at the time as there. And laryngeal paralysis was another, another disease we hardly sort of saw at all. And then suddenly we started to recognise it and be able to deal with it. So I feel very lucky that I went through it at an exciting time where a number of these diseases weren't really recognised and, 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 and I was around when, when you know, we were sort of looking at how best we could deal with them. But, but yeah, I guess portosystemic shunts, tubes, putting tubes together. So um, things like ectopic ureters and things like that. Anything with a tube and a, and a flow of fluid through it, I guess. Okay, no, fair enough. Um, I mean, whatever floats your boat. No, I'm joking. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think it's interesting what you're saying about portosystemic shunts and was having a similar sort of conversation earlier on about hyperthyroidism. It's, it's you know, the, the prevalence, for instance, of hyperthyroid, or, you know, it's become a much more prevalent disease. But is it because it is a more prevalent disease or is it because, well, so many factors, there's more pets. We're better at looking for things. We're better at finding things. And I think that's, everything's kind of just moved on amazingly. Just just kind of talking about that now, as far as the um, that kind of diagnostic journey of portosystemic shunt cases, um, well, I suppose the ones that you see will usually have had a lot of diagnostic stuff done before. Um, so I wonder if we can just start by kind of talking through... Um, the kind of diagnostic, the the sort of the the diagnostic process for these cases and how best to ultimately get them to the point where they require surgery. No, well, for me, I think um, uh, it it does depend. Some of the cases that we see will come with very little diagnostics done. Maybe some blood work uh, and and maybe a pre and postprandial bile acids, and that's about it. Other cases I'll see as almost tertiary referrals that will have gone to other referral centres, and they would be more likely to be the intrapatic shunts, and they may come in completely imaged with 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 CT angiograms and ready to go. Um, I, I guess uh, nowadays I think people will have a relatively high index of suspicion in general practice for this disease, but when I first started seeing them, that definitely wouldn't have been the case at all. And so it would be much more common for, for a case that's got neurological issues from a young age, for it to have had um, at least a full blood profile and probably at least um, resting bile acids performed um, before, it, before it comes in. Um, the trouble with those things is that not always diagnostic and so so you know the liver enzymes in some cases can be relatively normal in other cases ALT and, um, and ALP can be very elevated the bile acids is the same especially the in my experience the resting bile acids can sometimes be, be normal and, and unless you do uh, postprandial bile acids you, you may not detect it Ammonia comes and goes. Some practices will have a, an in-house ammonia machine and they may well be able to measure that. And that can be very useful if they do. If they don't, it's slightly awkward because it's a level um, test and therefore you have to keep the blood on ice and get it measured fairly quickly. So I would say the majority of cases I see don't have ammonia measurements taken on them before they come in to see us. And then there was a period of time before we had CT available uh, as a common imaging modality where they would have um, had ultrasound done. And that will still be the case, but 
there was certainly a period of time where ultrasound would have been considered almost gold standard but i think you needed to be very good at ultrasound to know exactly what you were looking at and i was very lucky i worked with um, chris lamb at the rvc and that really became one of his areas of interest clinically um, and he was very good but but even then every now and again it, you know they might it might be mistaken um uh, and we might only detect you know exactly where the shunt was at surgery um and then we had the advent of ct and, and our ability to do C, ct angiograms and that really has sort of revolutionized our ability to look at the anatomy of the shunt before we do surgery and i think it's critical for me to to, to have that imaging for an intrapatic shunt it's maybe not so critical for an extrapatic shunt but i suspect some of that's based around the fact that I've seen so many, I sort of know where to go and look. But I think for lots of people, in the, you know, if they're starting out on the journey of, of operating on these cases, having that imaging available will make their surgery uh, easier to perform and, and probably more successful. Mm -hmm. So as far as, so I think we pretty much know that nowadays, certainly CT angiography is gold standard for the, the diagnosis of these cases, whether they are intrahepatic or extrahepatic. I just wonder, so um, once we get to the stage where we've made that diagnosis using, hopefully, well, CT as our imaging modality of choice, particularly if they're going to go ahead and have surgical intervention. Um, if we are talk, if you're if you're advising uh, first opinion practitioners or maybe other um, referral colleagues who are processing these cases before they come to see you, is there a kind of, um, would you say, a standardised approach to how you like cases to be treated prior to surgery is there a kind of do you have a, a a protocol that you advise for that sort of thing yeah i guess i guess uh, they'll i'll advise them to be man managing their hepatic encephalopathy so they those clinical signs and often that um, uh, will produce a dramatic improvement in the case so it may actually be part of that sort of uh, diagnostic aspects to it as well so they'll normally i'll normally suggest that they go on to lactulose syrup um and the sort of dose of that can be a bit variable and a bit made up and basically i think if you give too much of it they're just going to get diarrhea and so it's not the end of the world um you know if, if in terms of getting that dose exactly right but i think that's a key aspect of the treatment for me and then if the animal is significantly affected it will go on to some sort of gut active antibiotic and for me i generally use um clavulant amoxicillin but in some cases you know will come in on metronidazole and that's fine as well or just on ampicillin um and then uh certainly historically most cases would have gone on to a low protein diet and i think that's more contentious and i think knowing exactly what diet to put them on i think nowadays is is, is much more uh, of an issue um I'll commonly put them onto uh, a hypoallergenic diet, but basically I think you're trying to put them onto um, a, a protein that is good quality, but maybe they've not come across before. And I think that there's also some potential benefit putting them onto an, a non-animal protein, so, so maybe more of a vegetable um, plant protein rather than, than not. So again, we've almost come full circle with some of that in terms of what we've done over the years. But if an animal, if an owner was short of, of money, uh, you know, I might just suggest that they're using a, 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 an almost not very good quality dog food, let's say, that's that's got a high content of, of, of plant material in it as protein. 
and then then can make it even less protein if they want by adding um, a carbohydrate source to it so so pasta or rice but i guess most cases will come in on a preparatory food nowadays so those are the, probably the things but the low protein i think just got to be very careful of that especially in the large breed dogs that are fast growing that we're not actually um you know taking away too much protein intake and so it's going to be a problem with their growth mm-hmm, absolutely just one of the things i wanted to touch on actually you said which was interesting and it's you know we're managing their encephalopathy um, and, and going back to that kind of very typical presenting sign of, you know, a younger growing dog who has neurological abnormalities, you know, maybe even associated with feeding. Um, I just wanted to mention, obviously, we see um, quite a variety of dogs that present sometimes not young, you know, older, three, four, five. I've seen one recently, eight, nine, where they present for sometimes slightly different reasons. So obviously... Uh, we see a number who present because of uh, urolithiasis and urinary tract signs because of obstruction Um, uh, and sometimes with kind of on and off gastrointestinal signs. But I think it's interesting, isn't it, where we can see them at that variety of ages and actually talking about encephalopathy, you don't actually realise or the owners don't realise they've got encephalopathic signs until you treat that and then suddenly they're this different dog or they're a untrained puppy again or you know they're peeing all over the house again because they're not you know these sorts of funny things but I think until you sometimes treat the encephalopathy it's not that kind of textbook very obvious um head pressing that may we maybe think it's going to be so it can it can manifest in a number of different ways yeah I would absolutely agree with that and I think um the encephalopathy is one of those things I'm always a bit concerned about I mean we're probably going to talk about outcomes later on but, but, you know, what is a successful outcome? I think we probably will come on to that later on. We may can bring it up then. But I think the encephalopathic disease uh, or hepatic encephalopathy, you know, I don't think we really know what an animal feels like if it's got hepatic encephalopathy. I think if you talk to human humans that are, are encephalopathic, they often feel rotten. Um, and so, as you rightly say, you know, treat them and suddenly they can feel a lot, lot better. And an owner didn't realise they thought they were normal. And lo and behold, they suddenly realised they were a long way off being normal till they actually treated that disease. Mm, absolutely. So kind of coming on to that. So when, when you're um, having that initial discussion with an owner about um, surgery, ultimately. So let's say, well, let's start with the extrahepatic portosystemic shunts, I think, just to kind of to keep the intrahepatics obviously very separate, which I think they probably should be in kind of that kind of discussion. So when you're talking, so uh, our, our, our more common uh, single extrahepatic portosystemic congenital uh, abnormal vessel, when you're having that initial discussion about surgery, what options are you actually presenting people with as far as what they, have they got choices? Can they choose from different different options? Yeah, for me, an owner's got a choice from medical management and continuing that into the long term for surgery. And what I guess I'd probably try and do is explain to them what each of those options is likely to produce and that's when it's slightly difficult because as you've already alluded to some of these dogs can come in when they're a lot older and you didn't know there were any problems there I think those dogs that's exactly what happens to them they come in later on when they start to show more marked clinical signs so if you have a dog that's got reasonably marked clinical signs as a youngster it would be less likely I think for an owner to maybe go for, for long-term medical management, unless it was doing extremely well on medical management. But that will be an option to them. And it will that will be to, to a degree on how risk-averse they are. So for me, if a dog um, you know, is, a, is, is the right breed, right age, right clinical signs has responded well, 
I will say to them that, that, you know, we've got reasonable evidence to suggest that surgical intervention is going to give that dog its best chance of long-term good quality life. And, and for me, the sooner we operate on it, the better. And, and that's because for my feelings are the sooner we can try and restore the normal blood flow back to the liver um, and reduce the toxins flowing around the dog's body, the sooner we can get things back to normal and, and the liver is likely to regenerate and, and become a more normal sized structure. And also I think the toxins in the brain over the years, we've, we've seen a number of cases where we've done MRI scans on them. And there's no doubt that, that long-term toxins floating around that are producing hepatic encephalopathy start to change the brain and make it look almost like a human brain with Alzheimer's. You, you know, you lose the white matter and, the, um, and it all starts to change. And those changes don't get better. So my personal preference is that I, if an owner wants to go for surgery, I will do it early rather than later. I, I, I will generally not sort of suggest it has to have a, uh, a certain length of medical management. I like them on medical management before we operate on them, but I don't religiously stick to a period of time of you know month or two months or whatever it might be um, before I would then operate on it. As long as it's stable, that's fine. I, I worry about seizures. So if it comes in and it's had uh, seizures, uh, post-feeding or, or seizures at any time, I worry that they are at more risk of having post-operative seizures. Um, I, but fundamentally, what I do to the owners, I guess I try as best I can not to push them one way or the other, give them the options and let them hopefully digest it and then come up with a solution to it. So often that discussion may be had on a different day to the surgery. And if they're in any doubt, I'll get them to go away, have a think about it, and, and then make contact with them at a later stage. Nowadays, most of the people I, I see, most of the clients I see, will have searched the internet. They've all, they're already pretty well educated um, on, on what's going on and what the options are. And often they've already sort of made a decision. And so sometimes it's, it's trying to make sure that they completely understand what they read on the internet and whether it was correct or incorrect. Um, uh, and so that they're not under any um, misguided illusions as to the success of the surgery or the success of medical management. Mm. And when you talk then, so that's a, a point you, you, you spoke about the kind of post, the post attenuation neurological issues that we can see. Um, is there anything that we can do? Because that is one of the things that I suppose, uh, from my own experience, as far as when we lose patients, and touch with that doesn't happen too often, but when we lose patients, uh, when when post-surgically, uh, when they're, they, they've had um, surgical attenuation, typically that will be one of the reasons that causes them to be very poorly, obviously. Is there anything can be done that can that can prevent or help to prevent those sorts of symptoms from developing? Yeah, so I, I suspect you're probably alluding to the um, levetiracetam story. And I think this is quite contentious. So uh, th there was a paper that came out from, from, a, from a group, wasn't a particularly large study, where they suggested that the, the preoperative management and the perioperative management of these cases with, a, with an anti-seizuring drug, this thing called levetiracetam, um, had a significant uh, effect on the development or it prevented significantly prevented the, the development of post attenuation seizures which can, can commonly be fatal you know it's very difficult to manage that problem 
Um, and I think a lot of people then went ahead and used that drug. I'm not sure it's completely benign. And, and I think we will sometimes see um, ch changes to the liver with, it, with its use and sometimes some neurological issues in itself with hind limb weakness and things. And so uh, there have been now a number of studies, um, multi-center studies to try and uh, look at that use of that drug to see whether it actually does have any benefit. And a big study that was relatively recently published um, actually seems to suggest that actually the use of that drug doesn't have a particularly positive role to play. And so currently um, I don't pre-treat my cases um, with um, levetiracetam. Uh, they, they just come in on the medical management that we've talked about. Um, but there will be some, still some groups I think will, will potentially use that drug and they may go, well, it doesn't seem to do very much harm. So even if it doesn't do very much good, I'll use it. Not sure I completely agree with that, but, but so for me, I, I don't now routinely use it. Okay, no, that's good. And I think that's really useful to kind of, because I think there was, there has been that sort of change, I think, in, in that thought, you know, and it's so a, a very valuable, um, I think, to share that, that information. Massive thank you to Jenny uh, and to Rob for chatting today. Really, what an absolute joy uh, to chat to both of them. To learn more about uh, VTX and everything that we do, please head over to our website, which is www.vtx-cpd.com. We are actually starting our, our liver course, following on from our, our uh, shunt chat. Do head over to the courses section of our website to learn about all things liver related. Massive thank you again to Veterinary Instrumentation for their support of this podcast. And most importantly, a massive thank you to you for listening. We really, truly appreciate the support. Look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>